Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Spotify wraps the year with the podcasting top 10, one of Adlan's biggest bruisers loses their board, and what's going on backstage at this morning. Plus, Radio 1's first ever blind and non-binary presenters prepare to go on air, and in the Media Quiz, we reminisce on some of the worst TV of 2019. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining me today, MD of Production House Goldwaller, it's Faraz Osman. Hello, Faraz. Hello, Ollie. Uh, tell us about... That was very Heidi High. Yeah, it was. Uh, I like it. <laughs> kind of brighten up everyone's day. Uh, tell us about, it says here in, your, in, in our script, your major new production on early years education and language for BBC Education. Oh, well, it's not just my major new production. So the BBC are doing a thing that's part of a big learning... I don't, you know what? I don't know if it's announced, but I'm pretty sure it has. So apologies to anybody. We don't mind. If I was men of signed an NDA and I forgot. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a part of a... BBC Learning and BBC Education's new initiative. They're going to do, my understanding is, three big initiatives next year. One of them is a thing that we're helping out on called Tiny Happy People, which is about um, super early years education. So talking to babies in the womb, all the way up to when they start toddling, um, giving them uh, language skills, uh, doing baby-led learning. Um. When you say talking to people in the womb... This isn't about the BBC trying to extend its reach to fetuses, Might be. is it? <laughs> it's a good plan. They are the licensed about, fee payers of tomorrow. It's about all the research about how the, the sooner you start um, talking to babies and the sooner you start interacting with them, um, uh, it helps their language skills develop much. Just because they don't talk back at you doesn't mean they're not listening, basically. So is it a web series then? It'll be, it'll be a big web-based product, uh, project. Um, my understanding is, is that they're trying to reach... Uh, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds that don't normally interact with this sort of thing. Um, and uh, and it's looking, you know, they've, they've commissioned a lot of films. It's looking really, really lovely. So, so different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, that means, in BBC terms, that means poorer people than usually watch BBC content. I mean, if it, that's your it? interpretation of BBC terms, then you're welcome to read the brief in that I'm way. I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> also joining us today, senior analyst at Edelman and host of Primarily 2020 podcast, Karen Robinson's back on the show. Hello, Karen. Hello. Um, how does the election that we've all just endured... Uh, compare with what is going on in, in the States at the moment? Um, well, it's it's been a great test case for me in all of the ways in which the media are going to screw up our election, <laughs> uh, the same ways they screwed up this election. Um, so uh, the, the two things that I think are interesting as test cases are, what do you do when the incumbent leader refuses any any engagement with the journal with journalism and yes. does only only media ops um only photo ops as opposed to actual engagement um the american press have been trying to figure that out for a few years now we haven't and cracked kicks, it kicks the daily mirror off the bus as well all that kicks the yeah Trumpy. kicks the newspapers that he doesn't like yeah. off the bus um refuses to do any sit down interviews will only um kind of appear in photo ops so boris johnson is uh the servant has been, the student has become the master on that because uh, he's now leading the way on how to how to do that. Um, so that's that's interesting, um, and I think uh, I would love to think that our press is going to learn from what your press failed to do, but nobody's cracked this problem yet. What do you do if there is simple non-cooperation from uh, from government leaders who you have to cover um, in trying to hold them to account? So good luck with that, guys. Have you seen any parallels as well, Faraz? Because it did occur to me watching the news at 10 the night before the general election. I don't know if you saw Boris Johnson's final kind of rally. 
it looked like a Trump rally. He was surrounded by people. They were standing behind him and in front of him. They were all waving banners. It looked like a stadium. It probably wasn't. It was probably like, you know, a conference centre in Birmingham. Yeah. Spin the it, camera around. It, it, looked like, it looked like it could have been a stadium. And the style was obviously borrowed from the well, USA. Look, I, th- I think the thing is, is that because of the way that media has accelerated so quickly... The the message is no longer controlled by by those who who own the means of broadcast, and the the issue with this is not just that Boris isn't engaging with the mainstream media or with uh, uh, Andrew Neil and you know um, newspapers etc. I think the big problem around this is that it's seen by a lot of voters as a good thing to stick two fingers up to. The BBC. It's a bit like, oh, yeah, good on him. He doesn't have to be held account to the BBC because we don't need to listen to the BBC. That's becoming problematic because there is actually, I think, seen as a, a PR advantage in being strong by not having to attend debates or not having to be questioned by journalists. It's a bit like, I don't need to talk to them. I just need to talk to you. And I think that that message, worryingly, is cutting through to voters um, that that are actually in, in a lot of cases swing voters, um, and that's going to be that's going to be problematic. I think the other thing about this election that I've been particularly curious about is how I think it's been fought on closed WhatsApp groups. Yeah. So I think actually there's a lot of stuff that we just haven't seen where people. Have, I mean, I've, I've from my Asian background and some some of my Asian families and, and kind of looking at the Asian press, there's been some really interesting things that have cropped up about Kashmir, for instance, and about there's a, there's a lot of um, British Indians who are pushing people to vote Conservative because of all of these conspiracy theories around how Corbyn is in cahoots with the Kashmiri and Imran Khan in Pakistan, etc. Um, and, and all of that is being shared on WhatsApp groups and not being reported in mainstream press, mm. but is, I would argue, at times much more persuasive, particularly in, in voting blocks that wouldn't normally go to the polls. Um, and that's going to be really curious, both in this election and, and the one in America. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point because in the our last election in 2016 in the U.S., that problem was 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 dominated by Facebook. Facebook has created more transparency and has worked with some tools to try and um, to try and minimize that problem. But WhatsApp, obviously, which is owned by Facebook, um, they have done almost nothing so far to think about how they can start mitigating some of these problems. So, um, you know, that will probably be the thing we'll be working on for the next few years after we singularly fail to manage our elections yes. next time around. Having said that. I've got some sick memes to show you later. <laughs> and uh, I suppose that intimate connection is uh, why some media companies are looking to get on WhatsApp as well, of which more later. Consider that a tease. Let's go on to the media news, though, and let's start by wrapping our year Spotify style. Uh, just as the streaming platform does for music, it has revealed the top podcasts of 2019. Uh, any surprises here? Was well, gutted not to be on them. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I, I mean, obviously, I'm far too modest to say, but uh, Answer Me This was one of the podcasts of the decade. But when it comes to the podcast of 2019, it was based on streaming data. It wasn't based on someone at Spotify saying they quite liked this show when they were 16, and Christ, it's still on. <laughs> so, um, of the shows that were included, were there any surprises there? Well, I think I think that Spotify, I think what's curious about Spotify's um, uh, strategy around podcasts is the amount of promotion they put behind some of their key acquisitions. So the three shots of tequila um, and uh, another one whose name I can't remember. Um, but but some of the some of the podcasts they've they've really championed and really heroed. Well, Joe Budden, the Joe Budden podcast with Rory and Mal is is the number one global podcast on Spotify, and it is owned by Spotify. Yeah. And I, I think that there's there's no surprise in that because they can control their own message and their own promotion and decide what um, what kind of floats to the top of of their own algorithms. Um, but I, I do think it's to the benefit of the podcast industry that it's being championed in this way. I mean, just even walking around London, seeing these massive billboards of faces that you wouldn't normally know or hear of. Um, you know, there were some huge posters in in Brixton that I saw. They were all across Box Park in Shoreditch. You know, they have they have spent a lot of money promoting podcasts in a way that the normal podcast industry would never, ever, ever have the opportunity to do so. So I kind of think that that's a good thing um, because it really is helping the medium um, pick up steam. Do you think people are saying less, therefore, than they used to, that there isn't a platform for discovery for podcasts? Because that has always been the big problem historically. Mm. Spotify sort of filling that gap a bit? Mm, I, 
I still don't think they've cracked the discovery problem. Um, so there's there's still work to be done on that. But I give Spotify a lot of credit for how they've invested in podcasts as a as a sector very thoughtfully. And I, I also want to give them credit for the way they've enabled creation, not just consumption. Um, with their purchase of Anchor, they've invested in Anchor, um, which is the the platform that I use, um, which is a free to use platform. They've they've done some really good things to improve that. And oh, go on, do. give us give us a geeky detail. What's different? Oh well, they've you know they're 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 help. So they've created a trailers function for example, which okay. was really helpful for those of us who create podcasts to come to, to do a better job of promoting it. They're, so it, what, you clip it up and visualize it? Yeah, it, it automatically clips and visualizes um, any any podcast of a minute or less. The, the nice thing is, you know, for somebody like myself who has absolutely no um, video or very minimal audio editing capabilities, um, Spotify seems to be pretty invested in making that work. Um, and they're they're working on getting their kind of stats and analytics a little better too. I've, so I've seen some improvements in that too. So, you know, I, I give them credit. I think they are taking podcasts seriously as they should. I wonder if it says anything different, the fact that, you know, you look at this list of podcasts that are really popular around the world on Spotify but you haven't heard of most of them, where that tells us something about how people stream versus how they download. It's not just about the, the marketing that Spotify puts yeah, in certain shows. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that. And I think there's also a bit of the fact that Spotify is still a fairly new entry into this into this market. So I think as a result, um, the uh, there's there's going to be discovery that's done in in ways that are slightly bit more anarchic to to some of the more established practices of of the iTunes podcast chart, for instance. Um, but I, I do think it'll be interesting once we really get a sense of this early opening gambit and the amount of money they spent to see how Spotify are going to be doing this longer term. Because I think that will really give us a, an understanding as to whether or not this was just a big marketing and PR push to move podcast listeners over to their platform or if this is a commitment long term I mean you tell us you've got the podcast of a decade have they been knocking on your door <laughs> have, have they shown you the money yet I'm sure it's just a matter of time I mean um, yeah, we've obviously said no to any number so far <laughs> just very just very briefly as well just wanted to say that there's been an announcement today about Netflix have uh, commissioned a, a drama based on the origins of Spotify and, and how hmm. it became uh, um, such a big deal so, so it's looking like that kind of uh, navel gazing is, is going to pay a bit of dividends when it comes to what you're going to be watching next year well the other thing that I think we have to watch in terms of Spotify and podcasts is is the commercialization of those because obviously the model is dependent on selling adverts and then you have the question about whether content creators are getting paid for those adverts like musicians and record labels do when people hear the ads on their music as opposed to people being premium subscribers and sticking with advertising let's talk about what's happening at MNC Saatchi half the board have quit mm. um, Karen is this a bigger deal than it seems because they're one of those sort of historic names from advertising yeah it's so MNC Saatchi are, are still in the advertising industry huge obviously um so it's a big shift and it's you know we've seen my former employee employer WPP has seen big management shifts over the last couple of years too um I think you're seeing a, a kind of falling of the old guard mm. in a big way across the industry which um I dare say <laughs> I, I I think is probably no bad thing there's been some complacency across the advertising industry in particular um of people who've been at the top for way too long um and they've they've filled the board with all their chums um and it's you know just genuinely accountability is really hard if you um are only speaking speaking to the people who are kind of similarly minded and your friends and brought in, which was absolutely the case at, at Saatchi. So, but you say accountability. It's actually about accountancy, isn't it? Well, <laughs> you know, the, the, issue <laughs> the actual money. Has the actual a, money. You know, but who's who's watching it? That's the thing. Who's who's managing it? Um, it should not How have been able been to get that been allowed to happen? Yeah. Exactly. Well, with this historic name in advertising. Yeah, because the board has been stocked with, you know, <laughs> not to get too revolutionary here, but the board has been stocked by people who may not actively be trying to suppress information, but aren't really looking to... To looking to improve it. So it's, you know, it's just become very stale, stale mail and pale, <laughs> but not that that's part of the problem. But um, I, I can't say that I'm particularly shocked um, to hear this news. It's obviously sad for a great name in the industry to to, to come to this point, but they, haven't, they also haven't dealt with it very well. So the share prices collapsed by three quarters this year, falling as low as 79 pence last week when the company admitted that uh, the accounting misstatements that first emerged in August were worse than expected misstatements is a great word. Um, do you think it might be worth buying into MNC Saatchi though for us? Are they going to bounce back from this? Because they're such historic, the people involved in setting up that company 
aren't going to let it die, are they? So it might bounce back before they finally shuffle off. Um, I mean, this is, this is the hottest of hot takes um, and it is just purely based on, on a bit of a hunch. But I do wonder how... I mean, I, I know MC and Saatchi because of political advertising and the fact that they met, I think they made themselves a massive name in that world. Political advertising, based on the election that we've just seen, has completely changed. Mm. And I think that in like the way that the Conservative parties have embraced posting... I don't know if you need to. Uh, I don't know if you need to uh, censor that, but but also alongside that, um, have also you know looked at creating memes and uh, and sharing things on Twitter, and at the same time, platforms like Twitter banning the the, the sponsored posts of, of political advertising. Whether or not that's going to have a, a lasting impact on established players, who I think probably got a lot of money from political parties to do advertising, um, and now those platforms are where all the reach is when it comes to advertising, but they're yet you're not allowed to spend behind those platforms. Is that going to cause a real issue for for established players like MNC Saatchi? Um, and I think, again, in the 2020 election, it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that shakes down in America, um, because by that time, we'll have a real good understanding as to kind of what Facebook are really going to do what Twitter, I mean, it sounds like Twitter aren't going to allow political advertising on their platform. Yeah. So how that's all going to come come to fruition? I mean, there's relatively little political advertising on Twitter anyway. So I think it, it was kind of clever of Twitter because they didn't take much of a hit by by, by stopping it. Facebook mm. is currently, I mean, in the US... Like Channel 5 saying they're not doing drama anymore. <laughs> right. But I think but I think the question is, you know, leaving aside the financial improprieties and the issues with M&T Saatchi, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't think they're well set up to be the lead advertisers in the very, very different advertising environment of today. Um, I haven't seen a lot of massive innovation from them or... But their, you know, their big money probably doesn't come from political advertising, does it? It's probably like banks and stuff well, like yeah, that. There's loads of banks. Banks that are still also need... advertising different. I mean, tar- you know, better, smarter targeting for customer acquisition for banks is, is absolutely vital mm. these days. I mean, you need to do the brand piece, but there has to be, you have to be right through the entire customer journey. You have to be right through the pathway from awareness to, to acquisition. And I'm I'm not convinced that they they still don't think of advertising purely as the brand piece alone. Well, I just wonder if, if the case is that the generation after Mad Men and before now, so that's basically these guys, isn't it, from the 70s, essentially, yeah. kind of created this very rock and roll, disruptive, sort of sexy mission statement kind of, yeah, idea that we can sell your brand in ways you haven't even thought of and it's all about simplicity and it's all about you know we don't wear ties is basically the whole thing and now that's like everybody isn't it like every advertising agency is like that so why spend more money with them so i mean to your question you know can mnc fail of course it can fail anyone can fail right you know the 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 world has changed drastically disruption is everywhere i don't think any business i mean thomas cook has been around for 150 years or or more and and they failed overnight so anything that has weak foundations can fail i you know would be sorry to see that happen to mnc saji but i would not be shocked by it Uh, All right, we'll be back with some more media news after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to TV, radio and online. As well as their broadcast standard studio facilities, Spiritland Productions also has a world-class OB vehicle for audio and video projects of any scale. Whether it's podcasting like this, outside broadcasting or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Just go to spiritlandproductions.com now. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Faraz and Karen are still with me. And let's talk about daytime telly. And uh, The Sun has been saying that it's not all sunny backstage at This Morning. Oh, Alamata, we both worked at This Morning, didn't we? We did, actually. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to say. Because <laughs> I should declare an interest at this point. Not together, I should say. Not we, weren't, together. we weren't on a sofa. Yeah, hadn't met you till we did the Media Podcast. But uh, Philip Schofield, about whom this story centres, was always very charming to me and very supportive and of my career. And you. And me. So, Lovely. you know, I'm tempted to say he just doesn't suffer fools. But... <laughs> Actually, no, Holly Willoughby is very nice as well. I wasn't talking about her. But the story appears to be that behind the scenes at this morning, the gossip is basically, Philip Schofield's been throwing his weight around and making people feel insecure. I mean, that's sort of essentially what it is, isn't it? Yeah, I, look, I, I, this morning is is going through an interesting period because of what happened with the Jeremy Carl show, which means that my understanding is that the show is going to be extended and it's going to be a longer show. Um, obviously, Good Morning Britain has morphed from being this, you know, nice version of uh, of GMTV to to whatever it is up here. Morgan wants to shout about, and and so as a result, sandwiching that between sandwiching this morning between Loose Women and. And uh, and a Piers show, um, I, I think is get Lorraine and Lorraine, but and and also in addition to that, extending it to being a longer block, it wouldn't surprise me if if all of that has put on quite a lot of strain to the production team there, as they effectively try to fill an extra what is it an hour that the Jeremy Carl show took up. Um, and, I think it's forty five minutes, but even yeah. so, that that's a two hour forty five minute yeah. live daily show. And and there was, I think, I can't remember if this actually happened. There was talk about doing a weekend edition as well this mm. morning. So so they obviously ITV have got a lot riding on that daytime block um, and need to keep a lot of people happy. But, but at the same time, the Jeremy Carl thing came out of nowhere, and I imagine the knock on effects and the stress that that's caused to that whole team. It doesn't really surprise me that there's there's a little bit dissatisfaction going on. On the sofa. And they've moved as well. They've moved from, from South Bank to Television Centre. And as we all know, moving house is one of the most stressful times in, in, in anybody's <laughs> life. But tensions run high in live telly, almost, and radio, regardless of who the personalities are, actually. They do it live. They yeah. Can be... <laughs> yeah, they do. I mean, I, to be honest, I was a little disappointed by the story because I, I clicked through it thinking, ooh, there's going to be some juicy stuff in here. And it, it seemed a little bit kind of junior staffers, junior staffers whinging because he wasn't nice enough to them, which... We should all be nice to the people, for for sure. Um, but, you know, fortunately, for all concerned, I didn't hear descriptions of, of the kind of abuse that we've seen in other media um, media downfalls of individuals. Mm. So I, I sort of wondered to myself if it wasn't more of an expectations gap here in that, you know, the niceness of breakfast TV wasn't uh, wasn't fully represented in, in every moment of Philip Schofield's behaviour. Well, in all got kind of other stories from the past got dredged up as well. Yeah. So, you know, whether Fern Britton had stepped down because she found out that her salary was a third of his. That might have happened, but that was over 10 years ago. Then whether Amanda Holden wasn't employed as his co-host when Holly was away because he'd nixed it. Well, if he did, he is the star of the show and he's got to sit on the sofa with them. I mean, none of it seemed that controversial to me. Yeah, and look, a lot of, all of those shows are based around chemistry. So if, if one presenter is not going to get on another presenter, then it's very difficult to hide that on screen. Um, and, uh, and if Philip is the incumbent and he's the one that people come to the show to watch, then it's not a surprise that he has a uh, a level of power that that might be um, that might be stronger than than other people that want to come in um, as as the new people behind them. So so I, I look, I, th- I think that it, these speculation is is speculation gossip is gossip and i think that this sounds like one of those stories well like... except i must say the story in the sun did come from dan wooten hmm. who's you know a pretty senior showbiz journalist and also crucially on lorraine every day yeah so i mean he's in the building with those people yeah and it included as far as i can see something that hasn't been denied the news that ruth langsford fellow presenter of this morning had made an official complaint about philip schofield so that all appears to be legit it's everything else that might be supposition. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if I was going to put my conspiracy th- theory hat on, uh, I, my understanding is, is that Dan is doing the job that Piers used to do a very, very, very long time ago. So so maybe Dan's looking for his uh, his exit and wants to kind of figure out what sofa he can sit on. 
<laughs> That's a true conspiracy. Dan, I'm really sorry. Please don't hound me. Yeah. You're going to get caught. That was just yeah. probably me gossiping because apparently that's what you should do in this industry. Oh my God, what have we done? What? Just briefly, I mean, this isn't news. I'm just curious since you're here and you mentioned that you'd worked on this morning as well. What is it, do you think, about working on a show like that, a live daily magazine show that is such a good grounding for people who work in, in the media industry? Because a lot of times when you meet people who work in telly, almost whatever they do, their background will be either This Morning or The Big Breakfast or Sky News. Yeah, Something about did, doing that live Blue, studio thing. I did Blue Peter as well. I did a lot of live stuff when, when I was working in children's. And I did, I did radio, which is where I first started. And I do think that... Um, a, a couple of things. I think, firstly... It's to do with journalism and being able to spot a good story very, very quickly and being able to communicate that in a way that is broad and friendly, but also is going to is going to generate headlines or clicks or however you want to um, call it these days. And and in in addition to that, there is a a real sense of um, uh, of understanding of British tastes that is quite quite difficult and quite nuanced. Um, and I think that if you're doing daytime shows um, or, or live shows that, that really need to understand what the pulse of the country is, it really, really helps if you've worked in those sort of environments because you see the stories that fall down. And fa- it's, it's failing fast, basically. Mm. There'll be lots of stories that, that both you and I have worked on on those sort of shows that at the time felt like it was going to change the world. And actually, when it came to air, you're a bit like, well, this is a bit of a damp squib. But you're, you're able to do that because it's live and you can move on to the next thing quite quickly. Whereas when you're working on a documentary for two years and then it suddenly gets to air and you get a bad rating in, in the Telegraph TV review, it feels like you've wasted a lot of time. And, and that doesn't, isn't something that necessarily is the pressure you have. You have different types of pressure when you're working in live. Yeah, it's also... Have, have you seen The Morning Show, Karen? Have you seen it yet? I've not watched it yet. No. no. It's good. I think it's good. But then that's because I've worked in that environment. But I, I was here on the show saying that the reviews were not particularly strong for yeah. Apple TV's first venture into scripted drama. But it's... I, I mean... Nominate for an Emmy now, though, isn't it? Is it? Right. Yeah. Well, it's good. I mean, it's it, it rings true in the sense of trying to create the impression of a calm atmosphere mm. for people watching at home, a friendly family vibe. Behind the scenes, there's got to be a lot of fast paddling. And that's what it is. Well, what I love about it is, you know, the story that I read is that um, they were already in production or in development on that show when the Me Too movement broke and Mm. some of the the scandals came out of the US. And they then quickly, so it was almost like you're saying about live TV, they had to revamp the the concept of the show around the changing climate. And they so they put kind of the Me Too movement and, and the sexual harassment problems straight at the heart of the show right up front. And that made it, that seems to have made it a lot sharper. And, and not only more culturally resonant, but also kind of created, changed the relationship between the women. Um, so, yeah, I th- it sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. It is super it soapy, by the way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying... Love a soap. Yeah, it's not blue chip. It's just really fun. Um, uh, and briefly, actually, sticking with kids' telly for us, we heard this week that BBC Children's boss Alice Webb is going to Eagle Rock Entertainment. What do you think she's going to do for them? Yeah, I mean, I had the pleasure of meeting Alice a couple of times. Um, I sit on the advisory board of uh, of BAFTA Children's, and uh, so I met her a couple of times through that world. And I was struck by how she was somebody that wasn't really known within the children's industry. She came, I'm not entirely sure exactly where she came from, but she came from more of a corporate world um, before she she moved to, uh, to Salford and, and headed up BBC Children's and BBC Learning. And it's in really rude health at the moment, BBC Children's. And I, and I think it's doing really, really well. It's just one of um, CBB's won another children's BAFTA, um, but not, not a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so when I read this story, I was quite surprised, um, not least because I think she's done a, a really strong job. And I think that um, she's pretty well respected in, in how she's gone in there and, and helped steady the ship after the move up to Salford. Um, Eagle Rock have done some amazing stuff. I'm, you know, a little bit envious. It's a it's a great job. And um, like like what? Well, well, they did they did the Amy Winehouse. They did some Amy Winehouse documentaries. They've done a lot of music documentaries. That's what they're mainly known for. Okay, so not kid stuff at all. Not kid stuff at all. So could so, it just so, be she wants to graduate from talking to three year olds? She's just gonna have a lot of fun. Like you know, she's gonna get to go to lots of good gigs. She's gonna get to um, see a lots of very big, premium, high quality um, music content. And uh, and she's gonna help kind of grow that business. Um, into into something that's beyond just a children's audience. So I think she's going to have a lot of fun. Um, I'll be interested to see what happens next because obviously Sinead Rocks left um, uh, BBC Children's as well to go and head up Channel 4 um, in the nations and regions. Um, so there is a little bit of a brain drain going on at BBC Children's and it'll be interesting to see how that reshuffle looks like um, once some new people come in. And whether their replacements are going to be native to the north. Exactly. And let's talk radio now because BBC Radio 1 have revealed the 35 guest presenters who will be hosting shows over the festive 
period. Uh, Karen, before we talk about the presenters themselves, what do you think about this big idea? Like, let's give over our Christmas schedule to completely untested on national BBC radio, radio personalities. So I have a, I have a couple of thoughts about that, which is, which is, first of all, I'm all for trying out new talent. I think one of the problems in media in general is that once somebody kind of establishes a foothold, it's awfully hard to shake them loose. So it, it, it's kind of nice to give people a chance when there's a lot of talent out there. Um, and certainly it's good to try diverse diversity of talent. But I think the kind of the flip side of that is if you really want to give someone the best possible chance of succeeding and being a, a really kind of beloved and successful presenter, it's probably not going to be good enough to just give them a one-off trial. You've got to kind of invest in them and support them a little bit and um, f- help them find their audience and help them find their show. So um, I'm all for it as a trial and to give people uh, a, 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 you know something that they can point to and showcase that they've, they've worked at the highest stage. But I'd also like to see them investing in kind of more different talent, younger talent, more diverse talent, um, and really kind of building them up and working with them on a more sustained basis rather than just trying a bunch of stuff. (laughs) I mean, it was an open demo tape submission process through which you could enter to say, I want to be on Radio 1 at Christmas time. But I wonder for us whether really behind the scenes. Because, you know, a lot of these people, it turns out, you know, I've been reading through their biogs and it says after doing her show on Boxing Day, she'll be presenting breakfast for, you know, BBC Radio, whatever, up in Leicester or whatever it is. You think, well, okay, well, so then she was on the radar anyway. There were probably conversations anyway. Coffees had been had and then someone said, enter this enter this process? Yeah, well, a few things. Firstly, Radio 1 have got a really good tradition of doing this over the Christmas break. Christmas at Radio 1 um, and on all radio stations is generally a bit quieter. People aren't commuting to work and um, people's habits change significantly. So, so radio, as a result, drops in audiences. And, and I think Radio 1 have always found that to be a, a good opportunity to try messing about with the schedules a little bit, trying some new voices out. And, and I think it's always really great to see. It's generally been a good relationship that they've had with student radio. And they brought a lot of people from student student radio to to do their late night shows across the Christmas break. And it's good to see that they've opened that out slightly. So one extra picked up uh, Ricky, Melvin and Charlie from KISS, um, quite unexpectedly for KISS. And, and my understanding is that KISS re- replaced them with uh, a DJ who they found through you know, bedroom internet radio. Um, so it's it's important that we do have this open demo submission because the days of going from student radio, graduating to local radio, graduating to national radio are kind of defunct now. When we were talking earlier about podcasts, I, I think that we're going to see a situation where we're going to see lots of talent come from lots of new places that we just simply wouldn't have expected to see them from before. So the opportunity for Radio 1 to do this call out and hear from voices they wouldn't normally hear from is what they need to do. Um, because I think exactly as Karen said, there's an issue about the fact that Radio 1 have not got enough diverse voices and faces and and some of them are, are slightly ageing. There's a lot of Botox going on at Radio 1 at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about diverse, I mean, they've really gone for that, haven't they? They've got the first non-binary presenter to have a BBC show, uh, the first blind presenter to ever be on Radio 1. I mean, does that matter really to listeners? They're not going to be thinking about those elements of the well, personalities they're hearing, are they? I mean, it matters to listeners who happen to be blind, who happen to be visually impaired and, and happen to be non-binary. I mean, representation is always valuable to the people who are represented. Mm. So, you know, just because it doesn't particularly seem like a big thing to those of us who don't, you know, have those lived experiences, it's, you know, the country is... Is it right to publicise it that way, though? You know, here's the press release. We've got our first, you know, blind yeah. presenter. It can, well, this is why I say it has to be, in order to not be tokenistic, it has to go beyond giving them a giving them a, a you know a one off and turning it into a, a stunt and it has to be in you know genuinely investing people so visually impaired people my mother-in-law is visually impaired um you know they, they there are lots of things they can't do but you know radio is one thing they can do super superbly well so why not give give people a chance to do these types of things and of um, course it's a i mean it's a great tool for visually impaired people to enjoy. Exactly. And actually, you know, there's the once you get to once you get into it, you discover there's a lot of kind of interesting ways in which visually impaired people are using voice to navigate their world, you know. Um so, you know, there's there's tools and technologies that allow them to kind of do almost everything through voice. So, you know, I think you can imagine if you were really developing it, you can imagine ways in which a show might um, you know, help people kind of, you know, pod, a podcast could be reconstructed to kind of be designed for the ways that visually impaired people use podcasts and audio. So I think it's it's more than just try out a presenter on a on a slot. It's let's think differently about how we can serve the different needs of the community. 
And, and I think from, from the non-binary issue, for, for younger audiences, that is such a huge thing um, when it comes to, uh, to gender norms at the moment, that those things are, are very much up for debate. And, and I think that when you look at things like, you know, Sam has started using um, his uh, non-gendered pronouns and there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the pop world where they are pushing um, uh, that debate forward. And I think it's, it's, it's almost feels weird that Radio 1 haven't got somebody from from that background and it's it's taken this long them this long to actually find someone so so i think it's important for who it is they're representing both from a music point of view but also from an age point of view to make sure that they have those voices represented and just briefly festive radio do you guys listen to radio at christmas and if you do do you have anything you look forward to every year <laughs> I, well i mean i think that the thing that's really broken out has been uh, it's absolute radio absolute radio's well, I'm again. on yeah, yeah which i think is which is just such a genius idea from a pr point of view mm-hmm. um and uh, and and that has now what's really great about that is that that seeps across everything you listen to and brings you back to the brand yeah um and i think that's really really smart yeah i yeah. i'm embarrassingly i listen to boring classic classic fm's dedicated christmas station oh right okay they is there a classic di- fm christmas classic station? fm christmas we i didn't were, know that yeah we were, we were quite disappointed that there weren't enough christmas carols on classic fm and so we discovered the dedicated the dedicated classic fm christmas station is that so, on dab uh yeah in london yeah. is it i did yeah. not know that so there you go they've they've serviced the needs of their uh, of their customers well okay since i have the opportunity i've given myself <laughs> i'm going to just mention two things that i always look forward to listening to every christmas one is the radio 4 food program do their annual best cookery book of the year special kitchen cabinet it's no 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 on the food okay. program it's like four people sitting around talking about their favorite cookbooks of the year sounds dull as ditch water and you think well i haven't read the book so why do i care that's so radio four to have a radio <laughs> so station good. about food that you can't see about books that you can't see like, you can't read these books you can't see the food, food they're talking taste. about but we're books, going to talk yeah. about them it's, it's great it's just it makes me want to buy all those books every year and then the other one which i don't i don't have ever heard anyone say they listened to before but that's the whole vibe of listening to him, is Nick Abbott on LBC, in the run between Christmas and New Year's Day, does a feature every night because he does the 10pm slot. He's been doing this for years. I hope he's doing it this year. I haven't checked. (laughs) But he does a feature called the A to Z of whatever year it was. So it'll be the A to Z of 2019 this year. And callers just call in. So he'll say, tonight we're doing M. And callers will call in with an M from that year. So it'll be like, I've been watching Motherland, for example, or do you remember that moment when, and they'll remember the name of uh, someone who tried to bomb something and his name was M. Like, that's it. That's the format. It's incredibly <laughs> compelling. It's just really <laughs> compelling. and I re- It's really funny. Uh, and it's, it's interactivity you don't normally hear. Sold. Uh, yeah. On it. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, let's talk about how journalists are being portrayed in the movies now because Atlanta's biggest newspaper has hired a lawyer to try to force Clint Eastwood to put a disclaimer on his latest film, thanks to the depiction of a reporter. Uh, Karen, tell us about Kathy Scruggs and Eastwood's film. Yeah, well, so Kathy Scruggs was the reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution who reported um, initially that the FBI was looking at Richard Jewell as a suspect in the Atlanta uh, Olympic bombings. The change, the factual change that was made in the film was to suggest that she had slept with her source and that's how she got that information, um, which is just not true, first of all. Second of all, um, it inappropriately brings up a common mischaracterization of female journalists that is using their sexuality to get their reporting. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's it's harmful in a number of ways. The journalist in question is dead now, um, so she's passed on, but the Atlanta, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is suing on behalf of their reputation because hmm. um, obviously the suggestion is that they, would have, that they would have encouraged their journalist to acquire the information in this way um, that's defamatory to them is their argument that you know you've you've suggested um, untrue facts that are defamatory to our representation our reputation as a journalistic outlet. So uh, Clint Eastwood is a uh, is a uh, is taking a bit of flack for that. But I mean, there are a lot of films about journalists, and there's a lot of films. Yes, about there are an people. awful lot of fem- films about female journalists sleeping with their sources in order to get the can information. You, it's <laughs> so boring. Can you give us another example? I'm trying to think. I'm not saying there aren't. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Can you think of other examples of that? Um, not off the top of my head, but there, there are all quite. Tr- Bombshell. I mean, I, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Bombshell yet, but but the, the fact that it's called Bombshell <laughs> and it's about it's about three blonde female journalists at Fox News. It's yeah. again, it's a little bit of the thing about film and and particularly film that's based on a true story is that it seems to be getting so close to is this a documentary is this a and is it kind of one-to-one retelling we had the same argument when when a steve jobs film came out you know adam driver's got the report that's out at the moment like i said bombshells out right now there are a lot of films that are 
based on a true story that then become the story and become what everybody remembers. About but those people are all alive. Well, what I was going to go on and say is there's a lot of films about journalists who are dead. Well, yeah. I, I would argue that, I forget his name, but the head of Fox News isn't, isn't live anymore. And that, then Bonshell is about his, Roger his tenure. Roger Ailes. It's about his tenure. It's mm. my understanding. It's about his tenure at, at Fox News. My point is, do any films faithfully recreate what it's actually like to work in a newsroom? And would you really expect if you die that your the version of yourself is going to be accurate to how you behaved in that setting. It's Hollywood. Of course not. Um, and bear in mind, remember, it's not the journalist who's who's bringing the lawsuit. It's the it's because the she's institution. Because yeah. she is dead. But is it a reasonable uh, expectation? That it it is not. Out? It is. A, it is not a reasonable expectation to expect that they get every fact true. But I think it is. It is factually, not only factually, you can adjust the facts. I mean, you know, it's my opinion. You can adjust the facts. Of course you can. You have to. I think by adding sex as the motivation for a female journalist to 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 get her source, it's not, you're not improving the story. I mean, this is not a legal question. This is, in my opinion, this is a narrative question. You have not made that story. You've tried to make it more interesting and actually you've made it hackneyed and cliched. So I would say just go try find other ways of motivating your characters, please. And journalists shouldn't be the story, right? So when you, if, if this film is about the story that she broke... I've just told you I've watched The Morning Show. It's great. <laughs> but but, but that's a, that's a fictionalised newsroom, Adam Sorkin, but like, um, uh, that's not a... Um, that's, that's different to a, a film that's based on true life facts. And if you're going to make the journalist the, the centre of that film, you're suddenly doing something very different to what the story is. You're, you're starting to put seed in doubt as to kind of the veracity and the, and the validity of the story that those people break. And journalists should not be the story themselves. It well, should to, be the well story to be fair, that... I mean, I think, that, just to add further context, so the story is Richard Jewell, who was the suspect that the FBI was looking at, was innocent. And so the story, journalism is a big part of the story and why journalism got it wrong and how, what it meant that um, journalists led with the story that the FBI was investigating this man, but then he turned out to be innocent. Um, he, you know, his life was basically ruined over it. So there is a big part of journalism's role in all of this. And I think you didn't need to add the suggestion that she'd, she'd sexually proposition her source to make that interesting. That's a really interesting question. Speaking of newsrooms, <laughs> uh, and after four owners in four years, the Daily Mail Group has become the new owner of the iPaper. Uh, for as the I has reassured its readers that nothing would change, do you believe them? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the last time I was here on this podcast, there was rumours that this was about to happen, and now it has happened. And I said then, and I, I kind of agree now, that uh, a, a lot of this is a, is a conflation between the editorial values of the Daily Mail and the infrastructure of the Daily Mail. And, and whether you like the editorial values of the Daily Mail or not, the, the way that the Daily Mail is run and their ability to pivot into digital media um, and stay alive and stay relevant in a very, very turmulous market has been exceptional. And, and so I think that if they're able to do the same thing for the iPaper, that's a good thing for the journalists that write there. And it's a good thing for their readers as well, because I think that having that backbone infrastructure is going to help them continue to be part of that polarity. There, there is obviously an issue about how many people should be sharing the same newsroom um, and does that mean that we have a, a lack of voices as a result because they're all coming from the same place? But I do think that the iPaper and its audience is very different to the Daily Mail and its audience. And and so I think that this is generally should be a, a thing that's celebrated. But if, Karen, the, the iPaper wants to follow the lead of The Independent, its former owner, and start soliciting donations in a serious way from from readers online, you can understand why people might question whether they should be donating to an organisation that they know is owned by the Daily Mail. And the very kind of people that might do that yeah. are the very kind of people who might be put off by that fact. Yeah, I mean, I do agree. It feels like there's a disconnect between the ownership, the ownership and the audience of the newspaper, which I think, although you obviously want the infrastructure and the investment and all the assets that the Daily Mail group can bring, I'm unsure whether it will feel to the customers of that newspaper, to the to the readership of the newspaper, whether it will feel appropriate. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, they, the Daily Mail has every opportunity to make this work, but um, they need to manage the comms very carefully. So as a comms professional, I would say, you know, they need to do a slightly better job to me than they've done in their initial announcements because there's sort of some throwaway language about, oh, we value their independence. But I think they need to flesh out that story a little bit more and, and give a bigger narrative about what independence looks like in this new world. The, the issue is the fact they're called the Daily Mail Group. 
and not yeah. the Johnson Press. And, and, you know, if they weren't the Daily Mail group, this wouldn't even be a story. It would just be another newspaper conglomerate bought another newspaper. Yeah, well, they, they are, are actually DMGT. <laughs> exactly. They? But no one calls them that. Yeah, they call them the Daily Mail group yeah. to underline the point. Yeah. Um, as well as consolidation, we know that big publishers are going premium as well. And the latest bit of bonus content from The Telegraph is on WhatsApp, Karen. And we were talking about WhatsApp yeah. earlier. Have you subscribed? It is free, this service. <laughs> Have you done it? I haven't done it yet, but then I don't normally get my news from the Telegraph, so that's probably just a me thing. Um, but I think it's great. I mean, I think the the notion of feeding into your in, into WhatsApp, um, a new, I mean, it's, it's a two-minute news update. Mm. Called um, The Briefing. Called The Briefing, which is very brief, two minutes. I, yeah. I commend them for getting it down. Different uh, to the FT's nine-minute <laughs> The Briefing podcast. Pretty soon we'll be at two seconds, and that's all <laughs> yeah. we need to know. <laughs> Um, so I think, you know, it's 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 great to do that. I'm curious to know kind of how they're like what the business side of it's gonna look like. I mean, how are they um how are they gonna build it? How are they gonna grow it out? Um I've you know, I haven't seen that kind of content content from a brand on WhatsApp before, but WhatsApp no. has tended to be very kind of person to person. And I find it weird, I don't know about you, but I don't even like WhatsApp being used for work purposes. Mm. You know, and as a freelancer, that happens quite a lot. You know, it's very easy to create a WhatsApp group for yeah. a project you're working on. But I kind of think, oh, that's what Slack's for. My WhatsApp is for sharing pictures of my kids and, you know, talking to my mum and whatever. And it feels an intrusion when work is on it. And yet, actually... If you have a relationship with the Telegraph as a brand, that's the point, isn't it? You see them as one of your friends. Like, yeah. if, if the Telegraph are giving you a Brexit update, that's something you might want to get, you know, in that kind of personalised content way. And it's super personal when it pings on your phone. Yeah, I guess I guess that's my challenge is, is it personal? So it pings on your phone. It's great. It's news you want. You've, you've opted into it. You're a subscriber. You've opted in. So that's so far so good. I guess the next question is, okay, well, what else can you do with the fact that it's on WhatsApp? Can you... Could you, you know, create groups of friends that share similar sets of interests and you can subscribe together to it and then have a conversation around it? It's just like, where can you where can you take this in the next level beyond just it's a new delivery device for a short form podcast, effectively? Yeah, I, I mean, I personally, I don't think it's going to work. I think it just ends up looking like spam. Um, you know, I had Netflix has got a WhatsApp thing that it pings me every so often and I just ignore it and I've now subscribed to it. My bank used to have a situation where I could WhatsApp them if I was going abroad and needed to let them know. You know, it felt like innovative at the time and and then very quickly it becomes very boring and irritating. Um, and I think that WhatsApp, as you say, is a messaging platform. Uh, we use it in our company. We set up all of our um, our groups. Because we use a lot of freelancers, it means that Slack doesn't work for us because not all of them are a fay with it. Everybody uses WhatsApp, and so it works really well. My understanding is that the whole of Channel 4 is pretty much run on WhatsApp now. Um, and, and I think that people um, who go in and out of... Uh, different jobs and uh, are part of the freelance world, they find that platform really, really useful. Yeah. But when it comes to delivering content, uh, I'm I'm very much, you know, feel like it's not it's not necessarily going to work. They tried to do it with Messenger on Facebook and I don't think it's particularly worked. Mm. Yeah. Um, and now they're trying to push that onto to WhatsApp. And I just think that people want a simple messaging platform that they can speak and communicate with people that they know um, to keep that conversation alive. And it's encrypted. And that's what WhatsApp's for. But for influencers, I could, I could see this being quite a big deal, this technology. Uh, you know, the, the going mainstream, the idea that you have a personal relationship with the people who are your fans that want to hear from you, you ping them when you have something to tell them, they don't have to filter through other apps to find it. It's right there That's on their what phone. Instagram's for. Like, what's, I mean, because why? they go to Instagram as a destination, it doesn't necessarily notify them that you have a new video out. And I suppose the second part of it is they're encouraged to hmm. respond to you. On their phone, tap your message back, and I suppose the lucky yeah, few I mean, would get a response I, back. I mean, Instagram launched Direct recently, which is a you know their 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 messaging platform on Instagram, and 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 I think that which is a separate app is my understanding of it. And and I think that they are going to be experimenting in that space. Look, Facebook are really, really desperate to take their messaging profiles, which is where a lot of their currency is. We spoke earlier about the election, you know, influencers and on Instagram and the way that they're speaking to each other on on direct messaging. Um, you know, sliding into your DMs is, is a meme and, and, and Facebook are doing everything that they can to capitalise on that. But the truth is, is that I've not yet seen a way that brands... And uh, and advertisers 
can effectively create a one-to-one communication with 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 their audiences and and I just think yeah. this is another experiment that makes some good headlines but we've forgotten about in 6 months time. And I guess that's my point. Like we've we've got other ways of receiving 2-minute news briefings, but is there any way they could WhatsApp uh you know make it feel more like a community engagement tool? Is there any way they could build it out into, you know, you can communally subscribe to this and build conversations around it because otherwise you could get it through any mechanism. WhatsApp is fine. Sure, why not? Why not that if that's what if that's what you prefer, it's yeah, do just it, another option. Yeah, do it. Do and ask me anything with their with yeah. their with their journalists. You know, when you put yeah. a, new, a big story out, they have a big breaking story. Yeah. Say that we're going to set up a WhatsApp group, and you can ask the journalists yeah. how they broke the story, and yeah. you can create a conversation around that and shut it down like a day later. That's innovation. That's yeah. interesting. That's what that messaging platform should be used for. I, this doesn't this doesn't land with me. Well, let people follow the reporting live. In a sense, it feels exclusive. You know, as as people are as people are kind of the journalists are gathering the information and they kind of the way they kind of used to use Twitter and sort of don't don't quite so much anymore. Um, WhatsApp it feels a little more private, a little more exclusive. Maybe that's the way to go. In, in addition to this, and, put, and to put my lefty liberal hat on, and I'm sure Karen will kind of agree with me on this. There's there's a and there's a suggestion at the moment that Steve Bannon is looking at buying the Telegraph. Um, do I want Steve Bannon WhatsApping me like every day? I'm, I'm all right, thanks. I kind of think I want pass on that whether he will end up doing that or not the telegraph has been through a a very odd reinvention over the past well, i would argue year or so to being something that is a a shadow of of what it used to be um and has has played a very odd role within this election that we've just had um and and i think that they need to get that house in order first if they want to start broadening out their audience before chasing millennials on whatsapp okay there is just enough time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz it might be the end of a decade. How did that happen? But it's also the end of a year in which we saw some astonishing telly, but not always in a good way. For our last media quiz of 2019, I'm going to challenge our guests to identify some of the most complained about moments on TV from the last 12 months. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Karen, you will say... Karen. And Faraz, you will say... Raz. Got it? Let's go. Here is question number one. How many complaints did Ofcom receive after Piers Morgan self-identified as a penguin on Good Morning Britain? Karen. Was it like 450, something like that? I wonder if you can get any closer, Faraz, and then we could Uh, offer the point. 451. (laughs) (laughs) Typical quiz. So dark. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, closer to 451. (laughs) Uh, It was 950. Uh, more than any other TV moment in 2019. And they did nothing about it. Uh, and not only did they do nothing about it, but... Uh, they said it was fine. Ofcom said it was fine, and Piers Morgan actually put the... Not quite the Penguin question, but effectively the same question to uh, the uh, chair of the Liberal Democrats the other day. Uh, here's question number two. How many times did Love Island appear in the top ten most complained about moments? Faraz. Faraz. Four. I, it's only fair to offer it to you, Karen. Can I, you... I thought it was three. And Karen has stolen the point Oy. off Faraz. Right back at you. It was three times. Uh, Michael's treatment of Amber received 147 complaints. Oh, can I do the other two? Yes. Um, Not for a bonus point. Mo- when on. Moira um, did weird... Like, sat on Tommy's lap. Yeah, sat on yeah. Tommy's lap. And Even was though he was with Molly May. Yeah, um, what, what was your first complaints. one? Was, was your first one when... Michael and Amber. So the I'm going to say the... Uh, uh, oh no, I've forgotten it. Oh my God, I've forgotten Love Island already. It was the isolation of Lucy in the villa. Can we deduct a point for her overconfidence from Faraz? <laughs> it's Love Island. I'm always overconfident. Love Island. That's what you've got to be. That's how you get on the show. Anyway, hundreds of complaints about the welfare of contestants on Love Island this year, although maybe not a surprise bearing in mind the headlines around that show. Uh, here then is the tie break. It is tense, Karen. Thank you for that noise. How many <laughs> of the 10 most complained about moments were investigated further by Ofcom? How many were further investigated by Ofcom? The clue is in the answer you just gave to the question before. Faraz. Faraz. None. Correct. Hey. The broadcasting regulator did not uphold any of the complaints in the top ten, um, which means that, Faraz, you are the winner. Congratulations. Uh, Karen, what's the worst thing you've seen on telly this year? Uh, the election. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is it for today. My thanks to Karen Robinson and Faraz Osman. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast, you want to help us keep doing it, do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I'm Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.